Welcome to a load of BS, the behavioural science podcast with me, Daniel Ross. In this series, I'm sharing conversations with the leading lights, the sharpest wits and minds, the most rigorous thinkers and entertaining provocateurs in the weird and wonderful world of behavioural science. Humans are odd, curious animals who often bark up the wrong trees. We're contradictory, illogical and unpredictable. In a load of BS, we address why that's so and lots of important and intriguing issues. The difference between knowledge and data in a fragile, overconnected world. The mind-boggling but strong correlation with consumption of mozzarella cheese and the number of civil engineering doctorates awarded. The power of analogies to solve wicked problems. The unconscious biases at play when we choose a bottle of wine. And the intransigence of neoclassical economic theory. I'm glad you're here for the ride. Today, my guest once more is Rory Sutherland. Rory is the global vice chairman of renowned ad agency Ogilvy, has a brain the size of a football and talks BS like the best of them. For those of you who listened to part one of my interview with Rory, you'll remember that we paused with my question about Rory's own susceptibility to decision-making biases. We pick up immediately with his answer to that question. Beyond that, amongst other, we talk about solving cryptic puzzles, the difference between music that's listenable to and endlessly re-listenable to, and deciding how to move house. To get all my interviews, sign up to a load of bs.substack.com if you haven't done already. Subscribe on your favourite podcast app and nudge nudge. Please give me a five-star review. Your support means everything. Thank you. Now on with the show. There are a few complex things here, which is what do we mean by rational? Because rationality, by dint of irrationality being essentially suggestive of lunacy, we need a phrase like meta-rational to rescue this absurd use that if what you do is rational, it is therefore optimal, is an extraordinarily dangerous assumption because rationality is usually defined there by economists who have a very, very narrow conception of human motivation. That's problem number one. What Daniel Kahneman said to me in a chat, and it's worth recording for posterity, is that he thinks that our biases are too deeply embedded to actually enable us to override them. So I would be conscious of the fact that when I book flights, if it says only four flights left at this price, notably, it doesn't even say explicitly that the subsequent price is going to be higher. It says at this price. For all I know, they could be dropping their prices sequentially. It will still spur me to book the flight. The Selfridges website does something very clever, which is that it shows the sizes that are out of stock. If you have a pair of shoes in the Selfridges sale where only I'm size 10 as it happens and everything else is sold out except size 10 I'll basically buy those shoes not at random but if I reasonably like them and I know that I'm actually falling prey to scarcity bias although is that totally irrational because let's face it if I don't buy the shoes now I'll never be able to buy them at that price so is that irrational under non-ergodic conditions in a path dependent world that's a bit more of a difficult question so I'm conscious of it but I still despite the fact that I've been aware of, of scarcity bias for 20 years or so 15 years, I still am conscious of the fact that I act on it. Whether it's irrational or not is a debate. The thing that Kahneman said is what he did hope was that it would improve the quality of gossip. So in other words, in having conversations around decisions, we would gain, in the sense that economics, for all its flaws, has given us some really useful phrases. I think the words that economics have given us, although they sometimes go from being useful tools to being a mental trap, but that's a separate area of discussion. Concepts like opportunity cost, uh, or concepts like comparative advantage,
advantage are useful notions. Economies of scale is a useful notion, which unfortunately suddenly mutated into becoming a universal belief, which, you know, I mean, I've got certain Brexit sympathies here. I think the high modernist belief that effectively by elevating more decisions to greater and greater centralization and scale would always bring ultimate benefits to the quality of human life was a pretty dangerous assumption which was linguistically driven, really. If you just go economies of scale, nobody ever says diseconomies of scale, but actually they may be just as common in reality. And the fact that actually the role of people at the bottom becomes increasingly detached from people at the top and the information flow and the feedback and the skin in the game gets destroyed when you centralise things and the forms of information that you rely on when you centralise become increasingly unrepresentative of what's important in lived reality because you can only deal with data that aggregates It's fascinating that the Doomsday Book doesn't include people. It includes farm animals and buildings, but it doesn't mention people. And so that's a classic case, Seeing Like a State by James C. Scott is very important in this because it makes the case that actually in the kind of species we are, this kind of centralization of decision making has costs as well as benefits very significant costs as well as benefits. And the trick is to decide what to do at what scale. Whereas the phrase economies of scale tended to drive everybody, I think, to centralize advertising, for example, to save money. They started producing advertising content globally, which meant that the relevance to a local population dramatically diminished. Because you used to have advertising that was distinctively British, you know, the Oxo fam, who could only have been a British family. Now, if you have the Euro family instead of the Oxo family, yes, it is true to say that your production costs as a percentage of media costs diminish. But if the price you pay is that your advertising becomes essentially detached from lived experience, it can't really be chalked up as a triumph, except by the finance department, who can claim credit for cost savings, but are never held in the frame for lost opportunities. But Kahneman's point was if we elevate the discussion so that people can say, I think I'm right in going to this thing, but I'm just worried about whether it's sunk cost bias or whether it's status quo bias or whatever. And I ought to at least consider the old. It did help me out, for example, in that when I was moving house about eight years ago, I became fixated on which of three houses to move to. And I suddenly realized, no, no, no. In this choice frame, I should also consider staying where I am. And in the time I was looking at moving house, a new shop opened in the village, which was much better. A new cafe opened in the village. My daughter started at a school where the house we lived in was right next to the bus stop for the school. And I suddenly realized that I'd become fixated on comparing these three things. And I needed to reintroduce stay put into the decision frame as an equal and equivalent course of action, do nothing. And in the end, I did do nothing. And it was, I think, a very good decision. Absolutely. And I was wanted to just ask you one more question before we move to the quick fire. And it's about the debate between behavioral science and classical economics, because within the behavioral fraternity, a central plank to the text is that as we've touched on, neoclassical economics ignores context, emotion, irrationality in our behavior. It assumes perfect information and trust. It, it, or, it's come to assume, don't forget, it's come to accept signaling. And once you accept it, signaling, you're a behavioral economist. Right. The nub of the question I wanted to get to, and actually I was reading some Dick Thaler who talks about this problem in his book, Misbehaving. He cites examples from me back to the 70s of the ceaseless challenge from traditional economists that hypothetical psychological experiments hold no value. But behavioral science has been mainstreamed to some degree for, say, 50 years. So do 
conventional economists still uh, actually, suffer. Actually, much, much, oh, my, okay, actually behavioral earlier. economics, it was a rebranding of psychology. Kahneman okay, himself says this. And he says uh, it's a tragedy that we had to yeah. put the word economics into psychology yeah. before people would take it seriously. Uh, yeah. It goes back to Aesop, you know, who's, what, 600 years BC, okay? It goes back to Adam Smith. It goes back to Aristotle. The rhetoric—it's old. It's really old. Yes, but at least, at least mainstream. Okay, I totally accept yeah, 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 it. But yeah. at least mainstream in, in in common parlance, maybe in common parlance, maybe we might even say twenty years. But the question is: Is are economists still suffering from their own call it endowment effect, remaining wedded to their own neoclassical principles, or are they starting to accept their frailty? It's worth remembering that, if first of all, there's a huge sunk cost bias, because if you've spent 30 years of your life and you're now nearing you know, retirement and you are heavily invested in a set of beliefs, it goes back to that famous phrase, which is, uh, it's difficult to get, a, I think it's Sinclair Lewis, and it's difficult to get a man to, uh, to disbelieve something when his salary is dependent on his believing it. You also have, I think, a problem in academia, which is the whole business of peer review and high-status publishing. The approval of your peer group requires any progress. It demands of any progress that seven very influential elderly people change their minds simultaneously, which is quite a big ask because there will always be... There have been people like Kenneth Arrow undoubtedly changed his mind, didn't he? But there are a lot of those people who didn't or won't or who change their mind but don't change their frame. So if you take the case of Akerlof, Akerlof undoubtedly saw in the market for lemons that signalling was an important component, that in other words, signalling trustworthiness. Now, Akerlof, because he's an economist and because he's married to Janet Yellen, instinctively hates advertising. Now, Akerlof, had he had a different mental frame, could have said, this means that advertising, certain kinds of brand advertising, can be good. They can be economically valuable. But Akerlof, by dint of seeing advertising as an inefficiency, was highly low, and by dint of who he was married to, because Yellen had written kind of anti-advertising papers, because economists believe that anything that distorts preference is essentially, you know, dubious. I think instead of saying, you know, as the Austrian school to some extent did, the Austrian school, Van Mises, kind of goes, hey, these advertising guys, they're sweeping the floor. They're not cooking the food. They're sweeping the floor. That's cool, because I'm not going to pay $15 for a burger if there are a few rat turds in the corner. And I think quite often you have that. I think you quite often have a great product. I mentioned solar panels, where you've got a great product and no one's cracked the psychological key. And that's as much an area for stochastic tinkering and experimentation as the actual production of these panels might be. I think the loss of manufacturing to overseas markets was based on the assumption that design and improvement happens at the top. And the people in manufacturing, by the way, merely execute. But actually, if you look at the history of innovation, it's tinkering by people on the shop floor that produces a huge amount of the gains. I suspect a huge amount of the gains to Walmart and their extraordinary distribution skills was actually done by people in heavy work boots. Did they get a massive pay rise for this? Okay, no. All the claims of the gains went in either paying managers more or basically expanding the managerial and administrative caste who are taking the credit for... Now, and in the same way, I think, the Chinese will enjoy a huge advantage in innovation simply because you learn a lot by doing shit. There's only so much that theory can actually deliver in the field of innovation, particularly if your theory depends on what you already know. Because if we look at the history of science, uh, either accidental noticing of oddities, penicillin or Darwin, or pure bloody accident, you know, the extra, uh, the microwave. Why is this chocolate melting? Noticing something weird, or else there are three chocolate bars and Wall's Vionetta that owe their existence to an accident on the production line. 
Can I talk about something which is very interesting, which is... Please, one, go ahead. So the assumptions of what you might call, Nassim calls naive rationality. What is rational at small scale in the short term under conditions of ergodicity? Let's not forget, OK, it's conceivable that evolution has got the maths right and that economists have got the maths wrong because evolution has had a million years to get this right. And so the ergodic field of experimentation in ergodicity economics led by Ole Peters, Alex Adamiu and others at the Santa Fe Institute, the London Mathematical Laboratory, is highly, highly important because it suggests that a large number of human irrationalities make perfect sense in a world where effectively the time series average is not the same as the ensemble average. The reason that's important is that it looks like it's a case of evolution one, economics nil. And experiments done by Oliver Hume in Copenhagen have brought out the fact that humans make decisions differently when you shift the conditions, when the conditions become multiplicative. The assumption of economics is that utility is an additive function. Very little in life is actually additive because that suggests there's no path dependency. I'm on the public speaking circuit. There are two reasons why you do a talk. There's what you get paid for the talk and who the audience is, and the likelihood that you get invited to give subsequent talks. So if you look at everything as a one-shot additive game, plumbers, when they turn down a job, in one sense, they're just turning down the job. They don't have to care. But they also know that that person is now going to call another plumber, which they're more likely to use in future. So most of life, the idea that there's this additive function and you can reduce human utility to something that is interdependent and additive and where there are no order effects is kind of rubbish. So let's not forget when we're saying, oh my God, you know, behavioral economics might cause people to deviate from economic rationality. My argument is sometimes you're simply designing a world for lived, experienced individual reality rather than designing a world for an economic model. And that my job in doing that is emphatically doing God's work. I have no qualms about that. Sometimes you're effectively enabling people to make a decision they won't regret by providing them with the necessary reassurance. Is that a bad thing to do? I don't think it is. Certainly, it's not a bad area for inquiry. We can, you know, we can have a debate about the ethics. Now, obviously, you come into areas where no, I wouldn't deny for a second that you can use marketing for bad. Good con men are very good marketers. Let's be blunt about it, okay? The Nazis were very, very good at branding. I'm not disputing for a second that you can't use these talents for ill. I mean, that would be absurd and naive thing to say. And marketing on occasion causes people to do very bad things. In particular, I think, where the long-term consequences are heavily detached from the short-term effects. So addiction would be a classic case of that. What I think is important, though, is that we can't start from this assumption that when human instinct diverges from economic models, that the human is wrong and the economist is right. The assumptions would be that everything is the same at every scale and that short-term rational is long-term rational, small-scale rational is large-scale rational, large-scale rational is small-scale rational. And I don't think that's a safe assumption at all. So let me give you an example of this. I would argue that this would, I I just want an economist to argue with me on this. Maybe you will. For the creative department within Ogilvy, the reaction to flexible working was twofold. We prefer it and the work has got much better. If the work's better and people are happier, that's a good thing. And, you know, we can't argue against that. But let's just assume that Ogilvy as a whole is 5% less efficient with flexible working than it is with everybody in the office. In reality, of course, some things will be better, some things will be worse. And in reality, by the way, we haven't had an experiment in flexible working. We've had an experiment in being under house arrest, which isn't the same thing. 
So let's be let's be honest about this. This isn't a representative experiment. It's equivalent to testing something to destruction, really. I'm you know, the world's biggest remote working and flexible working advocate, but there have been moments in the last year, periods of two or three weeks, where I just go, Jesus, I'm so sick of this. Most of the moments I've been positive. You know, the fact that I could start work at 8.30 this morning without having to spend an hour on travel-related activities is pretty good. But here's the thing. Let's imagine it's 5% worse. But at large scale, what's going to happen if 10 million people can work three days a week from wherever they like? My argument to Mark Reed, the chief executive of WPP, is we should promote this and we should also promote it for everybody else. And the reason we should do this is as follows. Unless our client is the Duke of Westminster, Transport for London, or arguably British Airways, every other client business we have stands to gain if a smaller portion of everybody's after-tax income can be spent on discretionary expenditure rather than obligational expenditure. So if less money goes to the Duke of Westminster in office space and in, you know, the cost of central London living, less money goes in commuting. Both of those things, I think, are they're not really discretionary expenditure. They're simply a necessary cost imposed on the worker as a cost of doing business. There are no tax benefits accruing to either of those two areas of expenditure, by the way, even though living in London and buying a Zone 3 travel card is basically a requirement of your work. If we make those no longer necessary, it's equivalent to a nationwide 10% tax cut in ter- without any loss of government revenue in terms of freeing up disposable income to be spent in the discretionary utility enhancing space rather than the cost of getting to work space. Even if I would argue, I would argue if I were Unilever, now actually Unilever, there's swings and roundabouts for Unilever because people wash their clothes less. But on the other hand, although people wash their clothes less, people don't wear clothes that they dry clean. So it's very bad news for dry cleaners working from home, tends to be relatively good news for people doing laundry. But nonetheless, overall, to anybody involved in selling a marketable product, apart from those exceptions I've mentioned below, it would be hugely in their interests if the UK adopted flexible working in a extensive way. With the addition, it's rather like if you think about it, okay, New York, if you talk to older New Yorkers, they say it's never been so much fun since they got rid of rent control. Because you had a lot of people in New York who lived in a rent-controlled apartment, and essentially their disposable income was crazy. That's why you had Studio 54, to be absolutely honest. Now New York is basically a bunch of drones and drudges, you know, hauling to work in order to pay for a tramcar apartment. And they're left, to be honest, by the time they've covered their costs with something not much more exciting than minimum wage. 40% of our staff after-tax income goes in the shape of transportation and accommodation costs. Now, if they can move to Margate, travel into London on an off-peak train once or twice a week, move to Yorkshire, in the case of two of my colleagues, we can make them rich. That seems to me, at the collective level, that seems to be really important. No one's looking at it like that because they're going, well, is it more efficient at the level of the individual company? But what's well, rational things- at the level of an individual yeah. company may not be rational at the level of the overall economy. Productivity, by the way, is not always a function of time. And that 5% depends how you want to measure it. But long term might be made up or netted out at least by people being able to spend this what would become discretionary income on other more life enhancing things. But I think also to say that the back to the office movement has become in the last few months, a very self serving program driven by senior leaders who don't tend to know anything else and whose general raison d'etre is to be in a physical place so they can enact the role of the CEO, which is to move people around sitting in their uh, corner office. And the whole idea of the water cooler moment where ideas uh, percolate and are created through serendipitous 
it happens in the pub. It happens if yeah. you want people to bond, they don't bond in an open plan office. My joke for Ogilvy onboarding was we'll book everybody on a train to Paris for a day out on the Eurostar, and then we'll deliberately forget to buy return tickets. So we'll all be stuck together at a station for three hours. Now we'll bond. Bob Dylan says this, isn't it strange how people who've suffered together have more in common than those who are most content? If you want to bond with colleagues, you put people through a common problem or you put them in an unusual situation together, and they're far more likely to bond socially than in this totally artificial. What's interesting about our creative department being so keen on flex working is that creative people, and John Cleese writes about this very brilliantly in his recent book, creative people know how to hack the environment in order to make themselves most creative. And sometimes it means going for a walk. Sometimes it means one boss I had suggested, you know, uh, half a bottle of strong claret, you know, whatever it may be. But they know how to hack. With Archimedes, by the way, it wasn't sitting in the bath. It was getting into the bath. We often forget that. We think he had the idea of sitting in the bath. He didn't. He had it getting in. And actually, you quite often have ideas by kind of essentially tricking your own brain by distracting yourself and i'm a big fan by the way of working from home because i get i'll get up after this call and i'll go and stack the dishwasher but the reason i'm doing that is sometimes it helps you have an idea and if it doesn't well at least you stack the dishwasher there are all those little tips and tricks you can play that essentially enable you to have more interesting ideas and the open plan environment does not provide you with the autonomy to bring those to deploy those I fully agree. I think it's a, a conceit of, again, senior leaders who believe that that's where all the great yeah. ideas happen. But those, those are not the individuals who are actually, in inverted commas, doing the work or spending no. time in the corridor. They're sitting in an office assuming that all these... these well, they're also, they're also... They've probably got to where they are by their facility and bossing people around, dominating meetings. They're, if you think about it, the people at the very top are not necessarily representative in their skill set. And it's fair to say that their skill set may be far better optimised to 2018 than to 2022. Yes. I, I, I've got a huge advantage here because I'm Welsh. And we can't really do... This is a terrible thing. So there are going to be six Welsh people who go bananas at this point. But we can't really do management in the in the conventional sense because it's it's a, Celtic culture's less hierarchical and Anglo-Saxon. And so I've always kind of run things through influence and persuasion, not through direct order. And also being a libertarian, I'm a bit Ron Swanson. And also running a creative department, of course, telling people what to do is self-defeating. Because the whole point of employing creative people is they come up with ideas that you never would have come up with yourself. And so therefore telling them what ideas to have is completely counterproductive. And so I've always had this management approach, which is you give people a bit of direction, you give them, you know, literally nudges, but you don't actually, you don't actually issue edicts because that's completely ill-suited to the kind of work we do and to my own temperament, to be honest. That makes sense. I'm conscious of time and I want to move to quick fire questions mm -hmm. to wrap up. Uh, although I could easily carry on chatting about we all these topics. We could do a part two. That would be my greatest pleasure. But for the purpose of this, let's go into some quick fire to wrap up. And I'm also conscious you might need to go and stack the dishwasher or such other things. <coughs> so my first quick fire is the following. What's the kindest thing anyone's ever done for you? Oh, um, I mean, I have to acknowledge a few people by name, like Dan Gipple, David Nobay, uh, Andy Firth, who, when I got fired from Ogilvy very early on, rescued me with a job in the creative department. Okay. And that was done really without any, you know, it was done simply on the point of principle and uh, general decency rather than any self-interest. So in terms of path-dependent stuff, that was life-saving. What's your most powerful memory? <sighs> That I'd, I'd pause and come pause and come back to it. No, no, no I'll, I'll, ha I'll have to think about that. But that's really, really interesting because it's impossible. I think it's impossible to answer because there are very early memories. I can remember one of the early moon landings. 
And that, you know, that obviously sticks. I can remember a few things from early childhood. What do you remember, and this goes into Kahneman stuff of the remembering self and the experiencing self, is very weirdly unrepresentative of what is important. Somebody else said this, that they can't remember Chartres Cathedral at all, but they can remember the fact that there was a dead dog outside or something. I had a similar thing, which is I can't remember visiting the Acropolis, but all I can remember is I was very thirsty and there was a place there that sold slush puppies. And it is yes. to this day the best drink I've ever had in my life. I was Funny absolutely enough, I parched on a hot day and, I, and there was a place at the top selling... I can't remember a single thing about going around the Acropolis, but I can remember the slush puppy stand in extraordinary detail. Funnily enough, I have a very similar memory. I remember doing that trip and sweating in the most extraordinary heat. Yeah, that's my same with me. That Athenian trip. Next one. Which book do you gift most regularly? Apart from my own, because uh, that's not, by the way, that's not, that's not self-interest. It's that people ask me for copies and, you know, under many circumstances, I'll happily give them out. Probably at the moment, it varies very much from time to time. At the moment, it would probably be Seeing Like a State by the anarchist writer uh, James C. Scott. Because I think what is interesting to me is the best case for conservatism. This is what a lot of conservatives think and feel, but never say. And yet, strangely, the best case for conservatism is, and similarly with Graeber in a funny kind of way, is actually made by an anarchist anthropologist. Gillian Tett's book, The Silo Effect, Taleb, I gift, I've gifted a lot. Actually, the, the Choice Factory by Richard Shotton, who's a friend of mine as well. And, and actually, there's a great book, which is just out, which I'm going to give you as a present, as a recommendation, which is Nicola Raihani's first book. And I will find, it's called The Social Instinct. Great. And it's Nicola, N-I-C-H-O-L-A, Raihani. And what's interesting, of course, is that we tend to do primatology in trying to understand humans. But most higher primates other than us aren't spectacularly social cooperators. So her argument is we're better off actually comparing the meerkat rather than comparing the chimpanzee in many aspects of how humans interact and what explains human behavior. So I would really give that a, a very strong buy recommendation. Okay, I will look into that. What's your desert island music? Am I, I'm, so I'm allowed more than one piece. It's not yes, the you can, uh, you can answer it as broadly or narrowly as you like. It will be a weird mix, totally weird mixture of Bach and country. Now, it won't only be Bach and country music, but what I'm saying is I try and cover the waterfront as much as possible. And it's very interesting. It's, it's just a very interesting digression. There's music that's listenable to, and there's music that's endlessly re-listenable to. What's fascinating about that is that we, you'd have to choose... So Desert Island films always interest me because there are great films, Citizen Kane, which I have no particular urge to watch more than once. You know, I watched it. Then there are other films which vary from the you know, fairly highbrow to, was it, uh, Le Règle du Jeu, you know, that French very early film, uh, to Ferris Bueller's Day Off. To most of Hitchcock, to give him his due, which are endlessly rewatchable. Goodfellas, endlessly rewatchable, for example. Narcos, as a series on Netflix, I I've probably watched every episode four times. And what delivers that property that it's not just great, but it's repeatedly great, is something that really, really fascinates me. That is a fascinating question, actually, which, now that you bring it up, I think about it. Winding down away from work, tell me briefly about your hobbies. Bit nerdy. 
cryptic crosswords, which I love because they're a kind of reminder of the messiness of the creative problem-solving process, that you can solve problems in two different directions. You can guess the word and work out the cryptic, or you can use the cryptic to work out the word, and you usually go back and forth between about three or four, and you can use inter- you know, you can use interspersed words to nudge you. So the cryptic crossword is a kind of perfect thing. I think it's survival over 50, 60, what is it? Yeah, 1930s, I think it, it, its origins go back to. But I mean, I think it's long-term survival as evidence of how brilliant it is as a conception. One thing I will say is that under lockdown conditions, I never thought of myself as anything like a naturalist or naturist for that matter. But uh, one of the weird discoveries of lockdown is how much my happiness and well-being is actually delivered by some degree of communing with nature or the outdoors. Because, you know, typically, if you think about it, when you sign up to a conventional office job, you're signing away effectively five-sevenths of your daylight. If if you live in Sweden, you know, you go to work in the dark and you come home in the dark for a significant proportion of the year. Some of that, even if you live in London. And the extent to which I shared this with Nassim Taleb, actually, working in the garden doesn't feel like work. If you rig up a wireless range extender and you basically go and work in the garden, oddly, it it really tedious, boring things are strangely pleasurable. So it isn't just going for a walk, which is how it's normally framed. It's simply being in the presence of nature in all its manifestations has an effect on its on your happiness and well-being that I'd never really noticed until now. Or I, or, uh-huh. or it was something I once knew and forgot. I fully empathise with that. I think a lot of us have recommuned, reconnected with nature over the, over the last year. Funnily enough, the working outside thought, it reconnects in a way to the childish pleasure one had at school when one was allowed to have a lesson outdoors in summertime. It changes the dynamic. It creates a certain in- informality about it. You forget you're working. It's a treat. I wonder, actually, by the way, creatively, it- I think the value, of, the value of walking creatively probably can't be overstated. I think that's clear for sure. Doing puzzles, I wonder, do you find that doing puzzles has a knock-on enhancing effect on your on your day job? I think it's just a reminder of the fact that what it is practice for is effectively, quite often we don't solve problems, we, we reframe them. This is true of mathematics, by the way. You, in some ways, the way to solve the problem is to actually redefine the problem. There are wonderful examples of this, going all the way back to Plato and the idea of anamnesis. But there are fantastic cases of problems that seem unbelievably difficult to solve until you actually basically represent the problem in your own head, at which case it becomes more or less self-evident. And so puzzles are great practice in performing that act. And they're also a great reminder of the fact, by the way, that when you're stuck on a crossword, do not sit and stare at it, least of all in an open plan office. Distract yourself, go back to the crossword, and three clues become immediately apparent to you, which were completely invisible for the previous 30 minutes. Now, I'm conscious of time. We could go on, but I'm, I think, Rory, we should pause there. And I'm going to thank you hugely for joining me today. It's been so entertaining and I've learned an enormous amount. And perhaps we can do it again another time and pick up where we left off. But only to say thank you. Thank you so much. I'd be delighted anytime. It's been a huge pleasure. Thank you ever so much. And there my interview with Rory ends. Take a deep breath and try to absorb all that you've learned. I hope you enjoyed it. With Rory, there's always so much to process. His frame of reference is really so broad. But there's one final treat remaining as a bonus episode coming next Thursday, and that's Rory's story of his 24 hours in a Qatari jail. Sign up to a load of bs.substack.com and subscribe on your favourite podcast provider to make sure you hear that. It is an amazing vignette, I promise you. I hope you enjoyed the show. Until next time.